This is Chapter 63 of The Boy's Life of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Boy's Life of Mark Twain by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 63 Living with Mark Twain. I accompanied him on a trip he made to Washington in the interest of copyright. Speaker Uncle Joe Cannon lent us his private room in the Capitol, and there, all one afternoon, Mark Twain received congressmen, and in an atmosphere blue with cigar smoke, preached the gospel of copyright. It was a historic trip, and for me an eventful one, for it was on the way back to New York that Mark Twain suggested that I take up residence in his home. There was a room going to waste, he said, and I would be handier for the early and late billiard sessions. I accepted, of course. Looking back now, I see pretty vividly three quite distinct pictures. One of them, the rich red interior of the billiard-room, with the brilliant green square in the center, on which the gay balls are rolling, and bent over it his luminous white figure in the instant of play. Then there is the long-lighted drawing-room, with the same figure stretched on a couch in the corner, drowsily smoking while the rich organ-tones summon from him scenes and faces which the others do not see. Sometimes he rose, pacing the length of the parlors, but oftener he lay among the cushions, the light flooding his white hair and dress, heightening his brilliant coloring. He had taken up the fashion of wearing white altogether at this time. Black, he said, reminded him of his funerals. The third picture is that of the dinner-table, always beautifully laid, and always a shrine of wisdom when he was there. He did not always talk, but he often did and I see him clearest, his face alive with interest, presenting some new angle of thought in his vivid, inimitable speech. These are pictures that will not fade from my memory. How I wish the marvelous things he said were like them! I preserved as much of them as I could, and in time trained myself to recall portions of his exact phrasing, but even so they seemed never quite as he had said them. They lacked the breadth of his personality. His dinner-table talk was likely to be political, scientific, philosophic. He often discussed aspects of astronomy, which was a passion with him. I could succeed better with the billiard-room talk that was likely to be reminiscent, full of anecdotes. I kept a pad on the window-sill and made notes while he was playing. At one time he told me of his dreams. "'There is never a month passes,' he said that I do not dream of being in reduced circumstances and obliged to go back to the river to earn a living. Usually, in my dream, I am just about to start into a black shadow without being able to tell whether it is Selma Bluff or Hat Island or only a black wall of night. Another dream I have is being compelled to go back to the lecture platform. In it I am always getting up before an audience with nothing to say, trying to be funny, trying to make the audience laugh, realizing I am only making silly jokes. Then the audience realizes it, and pretty soon they commence to get up and leave. That dream always ends by my standing there in the semi-darkness, talking to an empty house. He did not return to Dublin the next summer, but took a house at Tuxedo, near New York. 
I did not go there with him, for in the spring it was agreed that I should make a pilgrimage to the Mississippi and the Pacific coast to see those few still remaining who had known Mark Twain in his youth. John Briggs was alive, also Horace Bixby, Joe Goodman, Steve and Jim Gillis, and there were a few others. It was a trip taken none too soon. John Briggs, a gentle-hearted old man who sat by his fire and through one afternoon told me of the happy days along the river-front, from the cave to Holliday's Hill, did not reach the end of the year. Horace Bixby, at eighty-one, was still young, and piloting a government snag-boat. Neither was Joseph Goodman old, by any means. But Jim Gillis was near his end, and Steve Gillis was an invalid, who said, "'Tell Sam I'm going to die pretty soon, but that I love him, that I've loved him all my life, and I'll love him till I die.'" End of chapter 63